Well, that's a great prayer. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, 20 to 28. I think this is the last of my series in Luke, which means that this is like, uh, I don't know, the 70th sermon in Luke so far. So we'll finish the book at some point, but uh, for the summer, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians, so that's where we'll soon be. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we think of the Aramaic word in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come, that we have just sung at the end four times. And may that be more than just songs, but the heartbeat, the desire of our hearts. And Father, as we look again at the end times, because that's where the text is, I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and charity and grace. Father, we do not want to be impacted by what man says. We do not want to be impacted necessarily by traditions that we have been brought up with, but we ask that your inspired and errant word would transform us, would change us, that we would know what your word says, that you would speak clearly to us, and that we would be transformed. You're a good God, and you've given us a good word. We ask that you would impart it to our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Toby was a single guy. He had never been on a cruise, but had signed up for a cruise in the Bahamas. It was his first one. He walked up the gangplank. He was up on the top deck, and he walked by this young gal. He was attracted to her, noticed immediately she did not have a ring on her finger made his way over to the Mater D, handed him a bill and said, any way you could arrange for that gal to be at my dinner table tonight? It wasn't the first cruise for the Mater D. He had heard this request before. He said, leave it in my hands. I'll take care of it, sir. And so he arranged for this young gal to be sitting next to Toby at dinner. They struck up a conversation, and when it seemed appropriate and safe, Toby said, you know, I really appreciate the incredible smile you gave me when we walked by one another up on the top deck. And the gal beamed. She said, well, it was easy to smile for you. You reminded me of my first husband. <laughs> Toby's ears pricked up. And he said, really? How many husbands have you had? She said, none yet. <laughs> That's hope, isn't it? <laughs> That's hope as we define hope. Something that's not assured, but something that she wants to happen, something she's looking forward to, something she's anticipating with no assurance. That's how we use the word hope. But that's not how the word is used in the Bible. Especially when it comes to the blessed hope, which is a word used for 
the Latin rapture, or the Greek parousia, the coming, the blessed hope, the return of Christ, is not wishful thinking. The word hope there is used as assurance, confidence. We know that Jesus Christ is coming back. That's how the word hope is used. And as you and I talk about the end times, as we talk about the blessed hope, we're not talking about something we kind of want to happen, wishful thinking in the future, and anticipation without insurance. It's a confidence. It's a settled, this will occur. Jesus is coming. He's coming back. And we have the confidence in it. As you and I think about the end times, I think about a tombstone. I've not seen this in England. I've only read about it, so I don't know if it's true. But this particular tombstone, I'm told, in the countryside, reads as follows. Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. One particular wag who happened by it wrote his own little sign and stuck it right next to it. And he said, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. (laughs) That's pretty shrewd, pretty wise. He wants to know, does this person have a confidence, an assurance? Does he believe what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a confidence that we who know Christ as Savior who have come to the end of ourselves, who have confessed that we are sinners. Sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity outside of the will of God. Confess our sin before the Lord and accept the penalty of sin, which is death. Jesus died as a payment of our sin. And we believe in Christ and receive him and his resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. And we are born again. This guy wants to know, did you go to heaven through Christ? Or hell by rejecting Christ? These are end time questions. As you and I deal with the end times, let's look at God's word. I want to read from Luke 21. We'll read verses 20 to 28. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolations, the Greek word eremosis, Its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man 
a declaration from Daniel 7 and 9 of a name for Christ. And they will see Christ coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. As you and I begin, we recall the previous prophetic passage. We looked at it two weeks earlier. And we noted that in the Bible, in prophecy, very often in both the Old and the New Testament, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is an illustration, it's a metaphor, it's a harbinger, it's a picture of what will happen in the far fulfillment. Jesus does that twice in today's text. He gives us two images from his time period of what it will be like during the great tribulation, the period described in Revelation 6 to 18, the seven-year tribulation where we read about seven seals and seven bulls and seven trumpets, and we read about Satan and his sidekick, the Antichrist, a demonized human, and the third person of the unholy trinity, the false prophet, well, they will reign and there will be devastation on the earth. And so he's talking about that picture of those seven years that are future to us. And he gives us two pictures, two illustrations, two harbingers, two metaphors of what it will be like. The first is the key word, desolations. This is a word that would prick the conscience of every Jew. In fact, Mark, in the parallel passage of the Olivet Discourse, in Mark 13, calls it the abomination of desolation. Luke just gives us the shorthand, desolation. Every Jew would have known what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to an event that took place 175 years prior to AD 29 when he's speaking in Luke 21. The year is 145 BC. The month is a month of Kislev, generally equal to our December on a Jewish calendar. It's a time period when the Seleucid or Hellenistic, or Greek empire is ruled by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He has come into Israel. His goal is to Hellenize, or Greekize, all the Jews, to outlaw anything Jewish. So he slaughters the boys who have been circumcised. He forbids any infant on the eighth day after birth to be circumcised. He outlaws kosher kitchens. He goes up to the Temple Mount. He goes into the holy place. He sets up an image of Zeus. And on the Lord's altar, he sacrifices pork or pigs. And it's called the abomination of desolation. And in response, the Jews have an uprising. They try and throw off the bonds of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And one of the great bloodbaths, one of the horrors of history occurs. And there is slaughter everywhere. 
and there is death and there is desolation. And the Seleucid Empire does to the Jews what is almost unthinkable. And he murders in a mass scale and crucifies many, many Jews. And Jesus says, that's a picture of the great tribulation. You want to know what Revelation 6 to 18 is like? You want to know what those seven years of the tribulation is like? You want to know the horror of that period of time? Think back to 145 BC, the month of Kislev, Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth. It's a picture. It's a harbinger. It's a metaphor of the great tribulation. And then Jesus goes on in today's text. We just read it. And he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the times of the Gentiles where Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Now he's talking about an event that is still in front of him. He's talking in AD 29. He's talking about an event in AD 70. We know about this event from all sorts of history. In fact, if you go to Rome today and you go to the Forum and you see the Arch of Titus and you look underneath the arch, there's friezes. They're carved out of stone and it's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's all over the most famous arch in the world. That's the underbelly of the entire arch. One historian asked this question. He said, has any city been destroyed like that as Jerusalem has been destroyed? You think of Warsaw, Poland. The Nazis burned it to the ground. 85% of Warsaw was burned to the ground. You think of Hiroshima and the first atomic bomb. 60,000 of the 90,000 structures and Hiroshima crumbled to the ground. And most of the remaining had to be destroyed because they were unstable. You think of Nagasaki, the second atomic bomb. 19,000 of the 52,000 wooden homes burned to the ground. And less than 12% of the structures were stable after that second atomic bomb. That's what happened to Jerusalem. The year was 8070. The emperor was Vespasian. The general was Titus, Vespasian's son, who would then become emperor. It was a seven-month siege. It was from the month of February to September. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They starved it to death. We know from the major prophets in the Old Testament, cannibalism took place because people had nothing to eat. And they stacked the bodies in the corners. And then the walls were breached in the seventh month. Josephus, in his book, The Wars of the Jews, tell us that the bloodbath was unparalleled, that one million Jews were murdered. Tacitus, writing for Rome, said, no, no, the number was only 500,000. Regardless, it was a bloodbath. 
And they took 100,000 survivors back to Rome. And 20,000 of those 100,000 survivors are the 20,000 Jews that built the Roman Colosseum that you still visit today under Vespasian. In fact, there's a plaque there that talks about 20,000 Jewish slaves. Where do they come from? They come from the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, if you want to know what the great tribulation is like, if you want a picture, a harbinger, if you want a metaphor, an image of the great tribulation, if you want to know what Revelation 6 to 18 is all about, think of Antiochus Epiphanes IV and the Seleucid Empire. Think under General Titus and the Emperor Vespasian and the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what it will be like in the destruction that will take place during the time of the great tribulation. Interestingly enough, Jesus spoke in AD 29. His words were well understood and passed down among many Christ followers. And we know that when Rome marched into Israel in AD 66, they were there from 66 to 70 before the fall of Jerusalem. We know that many Christ followers in Jerusalem did exactly what Jesus said. He said, run to the hills. And in fact, that's exactly what many Christ followers did. They left Jerusalem. They went to Perea, which they renamed Pella, which means God saves or a charm. Eusebius, the great historian, records it for us in the third volume of his ecclesiastical or church history. Let me read part of that volume. The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle, that is the prophecy of Christ, given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea that they called Pella, God to the rescue. To it, those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem, that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God might at last overtake them for all the crimes against Christ and his apostles. And all that generation of the wicked be utterly blotted out from among men. God provided a means of escape, and it was called Pella. It's not the first time, it won't be the last time that God provides a means of escape. Pella, God to the rescue. God has a history of that, doesn't he? Think with me back to Genesis 6 to 8 and the worldwide flood. And yet God allowed a man, Noah, and his three sons and their four wives to build an ark. God provided a means of escape, Pella, God, to the rescue. You think of Genesis chapter 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God comes to a righteous man named Abram, and he allows Abram to warn anyone in Sodom and Gomorrah to leave the city, to run, to flee. And only Lot, not even his wife, and their children flee the city without looking back. God to the rescue, Pella. You think of the first destruction of Jerusalem in B.C. 605 and 586 at the hands of Babylon. And God comes to Jeremiah 
and Jeremiah's sidekick, Baruch. And he says, fear not, Pella, God to the rescue. You will be taken into captivity for 70 years. One year for each of the 70 years that you did not leave the land follow, as I told you. You will be taken into captivity, but I will bring a remnant back. That's what Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is all about. We often cite it today that God has this purpose and plan for our lives, but it's actually a proclamation that after 70 years of discipline, God will provide a remnant. He will provide a way out. He will provide Pella, God, to the rescue. And that's what I believe God does prior to the seven years of great tribulation. I believe he provides a rescue. I believe that he comes down and removes his church the parousia, the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, at the trumpet sound of Christ, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are left behind, we shall rise with Christ, and we are removed. I want to make two parenthetical remarks, I think very important ones. The first is this. I don't believe that God always promises to remove his church from persecution that would make a mockery of the eighth beatitude in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, in which God says that there will be persecution for Christ's followers. That would make a mockery for those in Chad or North Korea or China or Indonesia or Eritrea or North or South Sudan where people are suffering immeasurably. I'm pre-trib. I believe that Christ removes his church before the rapture because that's my best understanding of how to read scripture. In Matthew 24, Jesus makes a number of statements. He said, no one can know the day or the hour, not even the son of man or his angels in heaven know the return of Christ. The angels don't know. But if I'm here during half of the tribulation and get myself to a mid-trib or a pre-wrath position, I think I'm going to be able to guess with fair accuracy the return of Christ. If I'm here for all seven years, a post-trib position, I think I'm going to be able to guess with real accuracy the return of Christ, but even the angels in heaven cannot guess. And to my dear amillennial brethren, I can't Embrace that either because you have to believe that Satan is bound now. And as I look at heaven and I look at earth, I cannot believe that Satan is bound. And all of that points me to a pre-trib position. Not because I don't believe God would allow his church to suffer. His church is suffering immeasurably. I'm pre-trib because that's my best attempt at understanding scripture. But that leads me to my second point, and that's this. We need to separate absolute fact from areas where we can be convinced in our heart, but sincere believers in Christ have differences of opinion. Fact, Jesus is coming again. Fact, 
Salvation is in no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. Fact, if we don't believe by faith in Christ and receive him as Savior, we have chosen against Christ and we are rightly damned eternally. But if we do believe in Christ, we are given eternal life. And then we get to those areas where sincere believers disagree and their timing issues. They should not divide the fellowship of believers. The angels don't even know the timing issue. Why am I so sure I do? We've got to have a little charity when it comes to mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, amillennial. They're all wrong. I get that. But a little charity <laughs> is what we need to have. Now, they would say that I'm wrong, and they're timing issues, and we can have great fellowship without agreeing on every timing issue. Back to the text. Jesus says when the time comes for his return, there are going to be great ecological and environmental events that will also be harbingers of his return. He tells us in verse 25, he says that there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of their roaring of the sea and the waves. It's all over scripture. It's all over the old. It's over the new. Let me read from Joel 2, 30 and 31. And I will show wonders in the heaven and on earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In the new passages like Matthew 24, 3 to 8. And as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But listen, but the end is not yet. They're harbingers. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But these are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. We need to be careful when it comes to timing issues. Even the angels don't know. My daughter and her husband and my grandbaby, I cannot believe this, are down in St. Louis this weekend. Do they have the right to take my baby out of town? I, I'm Child Protective Services, let's talk. And so I'm over at their house yesterday and I'm mowing their lawn because I'm a great father-in-law. And uh, somebody knocks on the door and it's this, uh, this very kind aged woman and she pulls out a little track and it says the watchtower and immediately I know that she's a Jehovah witness and uh, they avoid my house like the plague now they're going to avoid my daughter's house <laughs> so we get up talking and she says do you know anything about the end times I said well that's that's a matter of opinion I'm talking about it tomorrow would you come and I invite her and um, we get to talking a little bit not a lot and uh Jehovah Witnesses are trying to earn their salvation because they do not believe in the sufficiency of the payment or the atonement of Christ. But what they do believe in is setting dates. They've set eight of them. 
1914, 1915, 1920, 1945, 1971, 1991, I left one out somewhere in there. They've set eight dates so far that have not panned out. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 36, that neither the angels nor even the Son of Man on earth, but only my Father in heaven knows the time of my return. And so we need to ignore those who had set dates, whether they be the Haley Bop Common or Y2K or Harold Camping or Jack Van Imp or Jeannie Dixon. I'm sure they're all sincere, but they're trying to set dates. And Jesus said, you cannot do so. What we can believe is in the imminent at any moment coming of Christ. Imminent means he could come tomorrow. It means he could come today. It means he could come a thousand years from now. But we need to be ready. And that leads us to our final four thoughts. First, the only way that you and I are ready is if we know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. A day is coming when Christ will return. A day is also coming when everyone in this room will die. I don't know which one will come first, but we need to be ready. And the only way to be ready is with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not to try and earn our salvation, but by faith believe in Jesus. And to ask him to come into our heart to forgive us of our sin, to become our savior for his death on the cross, to be the payment of our sin and his resurrection, to be evidence of life after the grave. Have you placed, have I placed, have we placed our faith individually in Jesus Christ? Second, we need to be ready for the any moment return of Christ by how we live out that salvation, the process of sanctification. I don't want to be found doing sinful things. All of us have besetting sins, areas of weakness. And we want to be found empowered by God's Spirit, working on those besetting sins to have victory in Christ over them. And so it behooves all of us to ask the Lord, even now, what are our besetting sins? Maybe it's slander or gossip, and we need to confess and and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe it's a substance abuse, an alcohol or a drug abuse, and we need to stop kicking the can down the street and say, I don't have a problem, and get some real help. Or maybe it's that we love money and materialism. Or maybe it's a lack of forgiveness, and we need to ask God to turn our enemy into our friend and extend an olive branch. I don't know what your besetting sin is. I know what mine are. And we need to address them because we don't want Christ to return at any moment imminently. A day from now, a thousand years from now, I don't know. But we don't want him to return and find us ignoring those besetting sins. Third, God warned us not to love this world too much because this isn't our home. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, I got it right in this hour. Over in uh, Traditions a few moments ago, I couldn't think of it for the life of me. I told them it's because I had uh, surgery on my head and they dug a little too deep and I just, I couldn't remember it. They didn't seem too convinced. But 
in 1 Peter 2.11, we're told that we are strangers and aliens. This is not our home. And we ought to long for Christ's return. The song we just sang before I walked up, I, was, I walked in with the, half the song gone, but I heard the last four phrases, and they were essentially an English version of Maranatha, right out of 1 Corinthians 16. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And finally, as we think of the end times, we think of a time when God will right all wrongs. I'm going to mention three. A, Jesus will start to get what he deserves. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will begin to get the glory that he deserves. Two, Satan will get what he deserves. Revelation 20, verse 10 says that he will be cast in the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And three, if you know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you, I, will not get what we deserve. We will get grace. And some of that grace John describes in Revelation 20, 21, excuse me, 2 to 4. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's what we long for. We long for Pella to be rescued by God. We long for Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we could talk about the end times, not in any way acting like we're experts, or we understand all the elements, or even believing wrongly that sincere Christ followers agree on every detail. Father, help us to hold firmly those aspects that are not details but are foundation pieces that your son is coming, that salvation is in no other name but Jesus. A literal heaven, a literal hell, eternal in both. Father, if there's some here today that do not know your son, may they believe in your son by faith today and confess, agree with him that we are sinners in need of saving and save us. And Father, uh, on those areas that we are convinced in our heart, but they're secondary areas where sincere believers disagree, give us charity. Help us to be gracious. Help us not to divide fellowship over timing issues where even your angels are unsure. Give us charity, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen.